0: I'm sure everyone who has, here's that theme, the third man theme played on the zither, immediately an image comes to mind. And it's only films that can capture something that no other form can. And that's one of the early opening passages in Roger Ebert's new book. The book is called Roger Ebert's Book of Film. This is the most encyclopedic work I know on movies. It's from Tolstoy to Tarantino, the finest writing from a century of film, and it's writing by directors, actors, observers, critics, producers, all around watchers of the scene. I'm thinking, Roger, as we're talking, there'll be music throughout, certain pieces of music mm-hmm. our mm-hmm. two-hour conversation, I'll be in two parts because the
1: book is so all-encompassing.
0: That idea of a piece of music all of a sudden
1: evokes an image of a film. You know, Studs, uh, David O. Selznick, who produced the film, almost prevented that music from ever being heard. Sir Carol Reed uh, walked into a beer garden. The in the Yes, the director of The Third Man. And he heard Anton Karras, who at that point was an impoverished zither player, playing over the beer drinkers. And he said, that's the sound we need for The Third Man. Now what Selznick wanted was an ordinary orchestral score. He also wanted Noel Coward instead of Orson Welles. And he wanted a happy ending. And Graham Greene, who wrote the book and the screenplay, wanted a happy ending, too, but Carol Reed stood fast, and he got the the zither, and he got Orson Welles, and he got that wonderful ending where the girl just keeps on walking out of frame and Joseph Cotton throws his cigarette away. Because it's about betrayal. Yes, it is. His friend was a horrendous person, but it was his friend. Well, Harry Lime diluted penicillin and sold it back on the black market in post-war Vienna, and it led to the to the maiming and crippling of countless children. So he was a very bad guy. But of course, uh, Holly Martins, his friend, played by Joseph Cotton, is an American innocent. He's, uh, he writes pulp westerns. He sees everything in terms of black and white, good and evil. And so when he gets to Vienna, he's way in over his head, going to meet his friend, Harry Lyme, who of course is being buried just as he arrives in town. So he thinks. Yeah, so he
0: says. It turns out differently. But the idea is that piece of music suddenly evokes a oh, memory. Yes. And for me, it, in, in almost every aspect of my life, one or another, brings forth a certain film. Mm-hmm. You have, we'll come back to Third Man. Well, here, you, you quote Walker Evans from his mo- his uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning book, uh, The me- Moviegoer.
1: What page are you on then?
0: On page 40, the very bottom of the page, the last six lines or so, other people... Oh, this is
1: one of the most famous passages. Why don't
0: you read that? Other people...
1: He says, uh, this is the moviegoer speaking, he says, the fact is I am quite happy in a movie, even a bad movie. Other people, so I have read, treasure memorable moments in their lives. The time one climbed the Parthenon at sunrise, the summer night one met a lonely girl in Central Park and achieved with her a sweet and natural relationship, as they say in books. I, too, once met a girl in Central Park, but it is not much to remember. What I remember is the time John Wayne killed three men with a carbine as he was falling to the dusty street in Stagecoach, and the time the kitten found Orson Welles in the doorway in The Third Man. Is that last, pa- last part of the sentence that gets me? The other one, that one does, because,
0: again, we'll jump around and about. This part of a uh, quote from writings about yes. uh, Later on, you you have comments of directors. Kurosawa, the great Japanese director, explaining the lights I uh, why he sought lights in Rashomon. Mm-hmm. The idea, of a certain the work finding a certain kind of light. I wake up in the morning, invariably on a spring day, especially mm-hmm. or a summer day. Wake up in the morning, and through the window you see the leaves and the waving, and it was a slight breeze in the air, and you, the sun is just peeping through. I thought of Rashomon. You think of that trail through the medieval Japanese forest with that's the it. sun breaking through the trees, as that, the woodcutter is going through. But you see the movie. It's what brings the reality to me in heightened
1: form. What movies do, movies condense the external world into memorable little pieces of time. That's what Orson Welles called movies, pieces of time. And once one of those pieces of time gets into your memory, you refer to it in terms of your own experience. One thing that I found in editing this book, and this is a book of the treasures, really, of a lifetime of reading about the movies. It's an anthology, and I introduce every piece, but... There are by all kinds of different writers, is when you read these many different writers, you find that all of them were really touched by the movies. Uh, they remember when they saw a movie for the first time, or they remember when they saw a star for the first time. Uh, they remember the emotions that were evoked you by know, that Just experience. as you
0: say, there's so many thoughts come to mind, and, and we call upon uh, different aspects of Roger Ebert's book. The first one... Uh, some me the first star for the first i remember the first time i saw the first bad boy oh as a hero no the bad boy as a not a hero a protagonist of course it was jimmy cagney before public enemy he was in a movie there was a he was a supporting actor for an old time actress named lucille Laverne. yeah star in sun up and had another name called penny arcade uh-huh. that was the movie pre-public enemy and in it is this younger son who's no rotten, he's no good, but he becomes a figure who haunts you. Nor, never before in movies I see this bad kid as the center, and it was Jimmy Cagney. And he was the 1st first ant. First anti- he was the first anti-hero I ever yeah. saw, uh-huh. by far. And then came Public Enemy, and we'll talk about that later gangster film. are thinking
1: now. of the gangster films, there's a, a passage in the book. I quote a lot from Ben Hecht, the great Chicago newspaper man who became the great Hollywood screenwriter. There's a very funny passage in here where Capone's boys come to call on him because they don't like the sound of this uh, Scarface. And it's just amazing how Ben Hecht explains to them that nobody could possibly think that Scarface and Al Capone were the same person. Now, Al Capone was known as Scarface. The movie is called Scarface. The hero of the movie is Scarface, and Ben Hecht explains, no, that's not the same guy. Five-fifty-six. Five-fifty-six? What do you five have
0: Five-fifty-six. <laughs> it's worth reading, I think. This is the imagery, you know. These are tough gangsters. They're killers, but there's something gets them. And somewhere along the line, is it there? Uh, they come to well, see him. Well, that's Ben Heck. Let's no. see. Uh... Underwood. Scarface. It's 5 yeah, oh, pay, I'm sorry. Uh, Five-sixty-three. Five-sixty-three, yeah. Five-sixty-three.
1: They had a copy. They entered the room as ominously. Why don't you? Why don't you okay. read
0: Ben Hecht, and I'll do. I'll. Uh, I'll, I'll do the voice.
1: Okay, you uh, do that. And,
0: and the bottom. Okay. The bottom you, of you page out, these guys, 563 it
1: says they entered the room as ominously as any pair of movie gangsters. Yeah. Their faces set in scowls and guns bulging their coats. Yeah. They had a copy of my Scarface script in their hands. Their dialogue belonged in it.
0: You're the guy who wrote this.
1: I said I was.
0: We read it.
1: I inquired how they liked it.
0: We want to ask you some questions.
1: I invited them to go ahead. Is this
0: stuff about Al Capone?
1: God, no. I don't even know Al.
0: Never met him, huh?
1: I pointed out that I had left Chicago just as Al was coming into prominence. I knew Jim Colasimo pretty well, I said. That's so. Yeah, I also knew Mossy Enright and Pete Gentleman.
0: That's so. Did you know Dini?
1: Dini O'Banion? Sure, I used to ride around with him in his flivver. I also knew Barney. Which Barney? Barney Grogan, 18th Ward.
0: Okay, then. We'll tell Al this stuff you wrote about is about the mother guys. They started out and hauled it in the doorway, worried again. If this stuff, wait a minute, this stuff ain't about Al Capone, why you calling it Scarface? Everybody think it's him.
1: That's the reason. Al is one of the most famous and fascinating men of our time. If we call the movie Scarface, everybody will want to see it figuring it's about Al. That's part of the racket we call showmanship. My visitors pondered this, and one of them finally said, I'll tell Al.
0: Oh, Who's who this fella, Howard Hughes?
1: He's got nothing to do with anything, I said, speaking truthfully at last. He's the he's the sucker with the money.
0: Okay, to hell with him.
1: My visitors left. <laughs> That's a great, that is a
0: great scene. Yeah. Because that also is not a... Because the gangsters themselves feel... You said... Oh, you, or you, or, or rather, Ben Heck said, well, he's a very fascinating guy, so it's not him, said, oh, is that so?
1: Yeah, and being known, being yeah, celibate about part because he could because he could be in big trouble yeah, if Capone thought yeah. that he was portrayed. You know, at the beginning of this uh, Ben Heck piece, I have uh, one of my little notes here. Um, I introduce every piece, and it's that famous story, Studs. You've heard this a thousand times. Herman Makowitz, the man who later wrote Citizen Kane, was a newspaper man, too. And, of course, when talkies came in, suddenly they needed dialogue. They panicked. They sent east for newspaper guys, for playwrights, for anyone who could write dialogues. And Maciewicz goes out to the coast, and he cables his old newspaper pal, Ben Hecht, and he says in the telegram, Will you accept 300 per week to work for Paramount Pictures? All expenses paid. The 300 is peanuts. Millions are to be grabbed out here, and your only competition is idiots. Don't yeah, let this get yeah, around. Yeah. <laughs> On that point, we will wander back and forth. Yeah. We'll come back to
0: Kurosawa in a moment. But you mentioned producers and Selznick and the idea he had that would have killed the idea of the third man. I want a different name for the movie, didn't like the third man. Hecht himself speaks of producers. Their job is to kill ideas, basically. Their job is to kill
1: originality, as he well, put it. The their term. job is to have another idea, you see. So you start out with the creative people, whether they be the writers, director, the actors, they come up with an idea for the movie. Now, the producer basically has one function that is necessary, and that is he has to come up with the money, and he has to kind of grease the skids to get everything going, locations, arrangements. But a lot of producers seem to feel that some gift of God made them into the ultimate authority on movies, and so often they would second guess, and this still goes on today. It still goes on today. But back to kurosawa yeah we mentioned
0: seeking the light and how it affected my life when i wake up in the morning my favorite film
1: is is not the most famous as ikiru you oh, know like that's to, a fabulous film i just reviewed that in the sun times i have this new series called the great movies every other sunday people have always said to me well why don't you go back and review some of the old films and my answer has always been there are too many new films coming out i don't have time but i decided every other week go back and review a classic and uh, kiru was the second one I did, After Casablanca. That is a great film. You know, in Japanese, it's a Akiru, the English translation, to live to live, to, live, to live. to live. And it's
0: about, and the reason I brought that up is because, again, the effect on me. See, back yes. and forth, me a, a goer. Uh-huh. In fact, there's a certain song in it he sings. It's an old Japanese folk song I discovered later on. And finally, an old Japanese friend of mine, or young Japanese friend, sang it about 20 years ago for me, oh, yeah? after Akiru. And this song is called Uta no Gondola, the song the hero, that wonderful Japanese actor, sings. It's, it, it's, I suppose very quickly, we know the plot, but to tell the audience, it's about an ordinary bureaucrat, small-time, his dying of cancer, and his life is nothing but shuffling papers. And He wants something to be remembered for. And there's a Japanese mafia who want a piece of land they're gonna, they they got to drag. But he wants that land for the poor people's kids, a playground. Yeah. And that's just,
1: he becomes, he defies everything. He becomes a maniac. At first he tries, when he finds out he's dying, at first he gets drunk, and he goes to the geisha girls right, and so yeah. forth. Then he realizes nothing to be found that way. Uh, he becomes determined to do one thing. He's been pushing paper for 30 years at City Hall, has never achieved anything. And at the very end, he dies, but he,
0: because of his tenacity and everything, at the end you see see him, the old cop, young cop remembers him last. He's in a swing Mm -hmm. as the playground opens, and he's singing the song about the fading of life and the fading of youth, and this is the way it sounds.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: again, you see, the effect on yeah. me, I speak only myself and I'm sure thousands have seen that film, that song, that sound, has everything that Curaçao would do, we knew uh, about hi, himself and the vision, the visual aspects, mm-hmm. but the sound is there too.
1: That is one of the greatest films ever yeah, made. I, I feel that. And there were so many, you know. Um, we are so lucky to be at the end of the first century of cinema instead of at the beginning. Although even at the beginning, you know, uh, Tolstoy, I have a piece in the book, Tolstoy saw the movies right at the beginning, right at the turn of the century, and he was so envious. He said, it's so much easier to make a movie than write a novel if you just go psst like this and you can change a scene, change your locale. He said it's going to be the greatest art form.
0: He did, and Gorty, you quote him, and quote, uh, Gorky, you quote yeah. Maxim Gorky as well. And the speaking of the of the challenge of the something rev- revolutionary, indeed, here, this is... This yet Tolstoy, you will see that this little clicking contraption, quoting Tolstoy, with a revolving handle will make a revolution in our life, in the life of writers. It is a direct attack on the old methods of literary art. We shall have to adapt ourselves to the shadowy screen and to the cold machine. A new form of writing will be necessary. I have thought of that and feel... What is coming? Mm-hmm. isn't And that, that was when 19 something.
1: He uh, 1910 or something. He died in 1910. Oh, well, then this is he died. So he 19- really died before Griffith's greatest yeah. works. He was seen 19- very primitive films, and or early films. But he like says great train an, robber. In, in another maybe. sense, he says the films they are wonderful. Yeah.
0: Drur and a
1: scene is ready. Drur and we have another. We have the sea, the coast, the city, the palace, and in the palace there is tragedy. There is always tragedy in Palace, as he says. Roger Ebert's book of film, From
0: Tolstoy to Tarantino, it's encyclopedic. It will come to all other aspects of it, too. From Tolstoy to Tarantino, the finest writing of a century of film. The writing in all forms, whether it be be, uh, I forgot Fitzgerald's The Last Tycoon or James Agee's A Death in the Family, we'll come to that in a moment. Norton, the publishers. So resuming for for the second the second reel. We'll call this reels uh, for the second reel with Roger Ebert and his book, uh, a book of film. We, and you you have a sequence. I remember using this on the radio about 20 years ago reading from uh, James ages *A Death in the Family. And there's this wonderful sequence, at the beginning when young young kid is about six years old, Rufus in uh, in Nashville. Yeah. and his father takes him, his father who was killed in the auto accident. It right now. It takes him to see a movie, and it's a Charlie Chaplin movie. At the very beginning, there, somewhere we have that. Seeing Charlie, and it's that scene. What that page would that be on? Let's see. Well, let's see. We're oh, on page, page 17, seventeen. Seventeen, yeah. Page seventeen. That's worth. Just a touch of that is worth reading. Seeing they walked uh, to the theater. Let's see. The way his face looked. They're looking at Charlie. Maybe top of page 18. Top of page 18, okay. There's Charlie.
1: Charlie stole a whole bag of eggs, and when a cop came along, he hid them in the seat of his pants. Then he caught sight of a pretty woman, and he began to squat and twirl his cane and make silly faces. She tossed her head and walked away with her chin up high and her dark mouth as small as she could make it, and he followed her very busily, doing all sorts of things with his cane that made everybody laugh, but she paid no attention. Finally, she stopped at a corner to wait for a streetcar, turning her back to him, pretending he wasn't even there, and after trying to get her attention for a while and not succeeding, he looked out at the audience, shrugged his shoulders, and acted as if she wasn't there. But read on stuff.
0: And it goes on in that vein. It's funny, and then they're laughing. He's got some eggs. He has a bag. Of, I think he has a bag of eggs in, in his, his pants, pocket, yeah. in his pants. He stole some eggs, the little tramp did. And somehow he's pushed, and he falls and he falls down on his, on his fanny, And suddenly remembered those eggs. And suddenly you remembered them too. And here's the part. The way his face looked with the lip wrinkled off the teeth and the sickly little smile. It made you feel just the way those broken eggs must (laughs) feel against your seat. I remember it's a five-, six-year-old kid remembering it now, as queer and awful as that time in that white P.K. suit when it ran down the pants leg and showed off all over your stockings, a little kid thinking, yeah. and you had to walk home all the way, people la- looking, and Rufus' father, that's the guy who took him to the movie, nearly tore his head off laughing, but it's Charlie, and yeah. the contagion laughed, yeah. and he laughed too. And now we think of Charlie because we naturally have to think of someone who is... Uh, sui generous, all on his own. He made the yeah. whole thing. Wrote, he, directed, distributed. That's why they hated him, too, aside from his political...
1: Well, history. you know, he was the first great star. And it has been said that previous to the invention of the movies, the most famous people in the world were Charles Dickens and Mark Twain because they were lecturers, famous lecturers. They traveled all over the world. And maybe in a lifetime, they appeared before hundreds of thousands of people. Charlie Chaplin, in a moment, appeared before millions. And within a year, he had been seen by more different people than any other human being in the entire history of the race. Think the names he had.
0: Charlotte and French. The Eskimos had a name for him. (laughs) Magic Lantern it was, Scream, whatever it was. Uh And they saw the little tramp, Africa. Way up north, Asia, everywhere. everywhere. Charlie was the, he was the
1: name. And we think of great movies, you mentioned Akiru, or well, naturally City Lights, among others, mm-hmm. comes
0: before, does it not?
1: And you know, those movies went everywhere. And in a sense, the invention of sound was like the building of the Tower of uh, Babel, because the moment you had sound, national boundaries went up. Before sound, uh, Garbo could make a movie in Sweden, or... Uh, uh, you could have a movie from Japan or from South America, Germany, Italy, United States. It didn't matter. Those movies could go anywhere and be played anywhere. The great early influence on the Japanese cinema was Griffith. Yeah. But the moment that you had sound, you couldn't understand what they were saying. So something
0: happened with sound, and we'll come to that, too. And But staying with Charlie for a Let's moment. Let's g- okay. City Lights, because you have sequences of all sorts of discussion of,
1: aside from James Agee, others. Yeah, well, I have a little bit from Charlie's autobiography in the book too. I saw, you know, in 1972, at the Venice Film Festival, they showed the complete works of Charlie Chaplin, his own prints that he had kept in Switzerland, and on the closing night of the festival, they put up a giant screen in Piazza San Marco, and they showed City Lights. Remember the little blind girl. And you know Yeah. And they had thousands of people in the Piazza San Marco and this movie playing and they all sitting totally silent, watching it. Then when it was over, the every light in the square was turned out. It was totally black and there was one spotlight that picked out a balcony overlooking the piazza. And Charlie came out on that balcony and they stood up the entire audience with a roar. And I'll never forget that. That's one of the greatest memories I have as a yeah. movie critic, being there that, that night. You
0: know, it's so funny, just as a personal note. Charlie was blacklisted in this country, and he left Persona on to live in Switzerland. And his name was... And at the time, I had a rough time. So, so I wrote him a letter to Vevey, Switzerland, and it got there. The letter was to the effect that, uh, well, there's been... At the time, he owned his own feature films, the big mm-hmm. ones, and he forbade it being shown anywhere. And I said, wouldn't it be great if there were, there's a theater named after Warners, after Lowe's, after Fox, No the greatest man in the history of film, Chaplin Theater, in which you could play all the feature films that you have, City Lights, Modern Times, The Circus, or Gold Rush. It would be fantastic for those young who hadn't. And I got back a letter saying, it, it, it was his, like, he typed because he had all sorts of, let things were crossed out. Yeah. My name was Ann. I remember Ann Anathema. He, he added the and. My name is Ann Anathema. You sound like a pretty nice person. Forget about me. It was a good kiss off, but it was done. He, he, yeah. he was very bitter. But I remember that letter and I lost the letter. You lost the letter? Yeah, I lost the letter. It does. But coming back to Charlie and City Lights, as you described it, we know there's a scene there, that, no other scene in my memory, when the recognition scene. When she touches his face, mm-hmm. she envisions a handsome young guy in top hat who's he someone who paid money to get her sight mm-hmm. back. Little tramp whom she passes by who passed her flower shop recognizes it as he. Mm-hmm. That moment mm-hmm. is like nothing. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, suppose we hear the violet song. This is a song of the flower girl. That'd be nice. <laughs> Touch of that, just a touch of again. <laughs> you see, just even hearing that seemingly very sweet saccharine song. There was a song before Charlie wrote that, but he did it. Oh, by the way, he did everything. Yeah, he wrote the music, he directed, produced it, acted in it, did everything. And wrote a lot of the songs. And wrote a lot of the songs. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so when you think of Chaplin, we'll come to Keaton in a moment.
1: If we think of W. C. Fields. W. C. Fields. Too. Now. I just uh, showed a couple of W.C. Fields' films last Wednesday night to my film class at the University of Chicago. You know, in the 60s, Fields had a big revival, and everybody quoted all of his dialogue, and they have posters of W.C. Fields on their college room walls, and today I think he's out of fashion again, but I think he'll come back. He had that unmistakable personality, hostility toward the world as a mask for incredible Insecurity and shakiness. Here, here's someone who found enemies in inanimate objects. Oh, everything you know. was against him. The entire, he would look, gaze accusingly at a staircase. I mean, the staircase was out to get him. The staircase, he had many fights with picket fences. Oh, yes. But also with hat racks. Oh, yes. And his, but the biggest fight against babies. Oh, he hated, he said he would never make a movie with a baby, a dog, or a woman with a low neckline because everybody would look. Yeah. Yeah at yeah. that instead of at him, and, and especially Baby Leroy, who... Now we come to Baby uh, Leroy. We have a little passage here. Do you Why want don't to... you read that passage? Well, about... uh, he and baby... baby... He's making a movie. He's making a movie with Baby Leroy. Baby Leroy was in several films with yeah. him. Yeah. 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 yeah, Baby Leroy, I think, had a, never grew up, or, or mm-hmm. he, they kept yeah. trying to keep him as a baby. Now, he's about three years old, yeah. something like two, <laughs> yeah. three years old. The enemy of well, WCB. Well, they, they had to stop shooting in order to give the infant his orange juice, it says here. So when the others busied themselves with scripts, Field approached the child's nurse and said, Do you want to do Fields? I'll do Fields. Wh- okay.
0: Where is that? What page is it?" I'm
1: on page 83, halfway down. Yeah, okay. I'll read the parts that aren't in quotes, All you right. read Fields. Fields right. approached the child's nurse and said, Why don't you take a breather? I'll give the little nipper his juice. She nodded gratefully and left the set. With a solicitous air, Fields shook the bottle and removed its nipple. Then he drew a flask from his pocket and strengthened the citrus with a generous noggin of gin. Baby Leroy, a popular warm-hearted youngster, showed his appreciation by gulping down the dynamite with a minimum of the caterwauling that distinguishes the orange juice hour in so many homes. But when the shooting was ready to commence, he was in a state of inoperative bliss. Tarrag and the others, including the returned nurse, inspected the tot with real concern. I don't believe he's just sleepy, said the nurse. He had a good night's rest. Jiggle him some more, suggested Tirog. We're running a little bit behind time. Several assistants broke into cries of, Hold it! Stand by with number seven. Makeup! Leroy's lost his color. Walk him around! Walk him around! (laughs) Was Fields' hoarse and baffling comment from a
0: secluded corner. (laughs) And then the child was restored to consciousness, but in the scene that followed... Taurog, the director, complained of his lack of animation, the child's lack of animation. (laughs) Despite the most urgent measures to revive him, he remained glassy-eyed and in partial coma. For some inexplicable reason, Fields seemed jubilant. He's no trooper. The kid's no trooper. Send him home. And then several years later, when Baby Leroy was grown to manhood, to boyhood, to boyhood, Fields heard he was... Re-entering films. The kids know Trooper. He'll never make a comeback. Well, that's Fields. <laughs> the other thing I remember, Fields. It was a two-reeler. It was called uh, "The Fatal Glass of Beer." Oh yes, the fatal. Gra- and his, uh, I forget his, his wife was played by an actress. Remember her name? Isn't that funny? Rosemary Thebe. Uh-huh. And they live in way up in Alaska, somewhere, North Pole and they have elks that they milk, elks. And a boy comes home, and he's a a forlorn-looking guy. Their son comes home from the big city, and he tells him a story. Once he was bad, and he reformed, and he found about a half a million dollars belonged to the bank. And then Fields and his wife, what did you do with that money you found, son? He's I returned it to the bank and I thought so goodness. So they just grabbed him and took him. The mother and father took the son by the head and heels and they tossed him out into the yeah, snow. Yeah. And said, I
1: think I'll go milk the elk. You know, the thing I remember about the fatal glass of beer is that every time Fields looks out the door of his cabin, a prop man throws a handful of snow in his face. And it doesn't look like a snowstorm <laughs> at all. It looks like somebody throwing a handful of snow in his face. And at one point the guy throws a little bit too hard and fields gives a hard look off camera at the prop yeah. man this is so we think if you, you think he's coming back well, this is interesting how how fashions are i hope so is, is as chat was chaplin out of fashion for a time well you know the problem is not only chaplin and fields and keaton out of fashion there are people who haven't seen a movie made 10 years ago it's uh it's a little shocking to for example When I started as a movie critic, uh, Casablanca was 25 years old. Today, Bonnie and Clyde is 28 years old. So time passes, and movies that we think of as contemporary are thought of as ancient history by some of the younger viewers. I think it's great, though, that television and the movie channels on television show a lot of the older movies so people can catch up with them. See, as you're saying this... This is
0: interesting how, what an analogy it is to everything else. The absence of history is mean, a big mm-hmm. battle, I mean, at least to me there is. That history in so many aspects is being forgotten, neglected, and overwhelmed by that which is new. Mm-hmm. And As a result, many of the young are deprived of past in every way, whether it be about the depression, about politics, or about films is almost uh, the, mo- the most uh,
1: vivid way mm-hmm. of indicating this change. Or the loss of something too. I really think that the invention of home video has been great for the reason that people do rent films and take them home or they they watch them on cable or they watch them on television. So those who are interested do go back. You do have do a look at. The you open. have a regular
0: column on that, don't you? Yeah, uh-huh. on videos and the in the suntime. As you know, Roger Ebert is the... Uh, film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times, but you carried elsewhere too, are you not? Syndicated, Asi- aside
1: from the television. Yeah, programs. syndicated. My 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 written work is syndicated around the country, and it also appears on CompuServe and on the World Wide Web. And there's a CD-ROM called Cinemania. So, I you know I spend studs. You know, when when we met each other, I was a newspaper man. and uh, that's where I really have spent most of the time during the last. 29 years of our friendship. I, I spend 80, 80% of my time probably writing, and that's my that's my real doing. focus. I'm very happy to yeah. do the television show, but yeah. writing he, by is By the way,
0: important. you and Gene Siskel, of course, have that. I imagine that's by far the most widely uh, seen program on films by far. I guess so, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. We're talking to Roger Ebert about his book that is encyclopedic. That's why it'll be on two consecutive nights. Roger Ebert's Book of Film, it's called, and the subtitle... And it's literal, too, from Tolstoy to Tarantino, the finest writing from a century of film. And it's Norton, the publishers. And so for real number three, Buster Keaton. Now, the first reaction to Buster Keaton, we think of him, we bracket him generally with Chaplin with yes. at the same time. Two different approaches. is two of the great film clowns of cinematic history. I mean,
1: Keaton never had the box office success that Chaplin had. And, in fact, eventually he lost his studio and had to go work for MGM, and he wound up making about five sound pictures in the early 30s. You know, Chaplin was able to hold off sound for many years, continued to be the only person continuing to make silent films after the talkies came in. But Keaton, uh, in many uh, of his films, didn't find an audience at first. For example, today most people think the general, it's his greatest film, that uh, picture about the, um, the railroad engineer during the Civil War. When it came out, it was not a great success. No. And now, later on, it's, of course, got coming yeah. to its own. Thinking of Keaton, just
0: on page uh, 382 of Roger's book, this is Keaton's... Uh, is, this, is someone who was
1: writing about Keaton? John here? Gillett and James yeah. Blue uh, interviewed him at Venice just six mm. months before he died. They had a tribute to him at the Venice Film I mean, Festival.
0: He worked with his father. He was a rough and tumble kid from babyhood on. And yes, props and characters. His Props become characters. And everything, he looked for simple things to go wrong, for simple things to go wrong. Now, here's the time I met Keaton. Obviously, he didn't have much money. See, this is after long after... Mm-hmm. is Brian, way back. Mm-hmm. This is 1950-something. He's on the summer circuit. Three men on a horse, he plays wow. Oywin. Horribly miscast. He's not made for that. However, it didn't matter. He invented scenes. He's in the bedroom. Three men on a horse about uh, a young guy, a guy who was a neb sort of, but was able to pick horses as well. And so he's kidnapped by three touts. And I was one of the three in the <laughs> summer stock company. Charlie, Patsy, and, and I forget it, Frankie, and I was the middle guy, Charlie. And so Keaton is this guy was kidnapped. He's in the bedroom. He's kept, uh, uh, Patchy's, Patchy's the leader of the three guys. And Shirley Booth created the role mm-hmm. of this girl who guards him and he's in bed and he has trouble with his sheet. He invented this, we saw him do this. It was the most astonishing 15 minute scene of his fight with the sheet and what happened to it. So here's Keaton's voice when I asked him, what about those early films of himself and Chaplin? about a contest who would need less subtitles who could show more without any words and uh, this is him talking now
2: i remember you once told me something about 10 years ago about you and charlie chaplin having friendly contests uh, who could do the
3: feature film with the least amount of subtitles
2: mm-hmm.
3: i think chaplin won that he got down uh, one of his pictures uh, something like 21 titles and i had 23
2: This is for an hour and a half film, something like that. Yeah,
3: seven reel picture. We started off with our features were only five reelers, but I think around, uh, mm, let's see, about twenty-five, we're in seven reels. Became a standard length for all featured pictures. Thinking about the. But another thing too, you got to call attention to is the average picture. Used 240 titles. That was about the average. 240 was the average. Yes, and the most I ever used was 56.
2: 56, and at one time you used 20, 23. So, again, we think of you saying something to, like at this theater, at this movie house, there were young kids, couples who weren't even born. Perhaps their parents weren't born at the time these films were made, yet they were laughing, they were howling. And it gives one the impression that uh, this humor is eternal, If there seems to be a hunger for it now, too. There's so little of it today. So I was wondering about your feelings uh, as you watch TV. You notice some of the gags are repeated, aren't they, in different
3: locations? They towns. have to. You can't dig material up that fast. I've refused to do a weekly show because it's the fastest way to a sanitarium that I know of. Drive you absolutely out of your mind trying to dig up. Well, I always tried to dig up new material and uh it's just impossible
2: well back in the days of the silence
1: wow that's so interesting studs to hear that buster keaton and studs turkle
0: no i'm thinking about that matter of himself using no words no words and somehow because of the screen
1: Mm -hmm. the magic lantern
0: Mm -hmm. this is what tolstoy was talking about too i imagine what got him so much about that? You
1: know what's interesting when you think of Buster Keaton and compare him to somebody else who I have um, as a contributor to this book, uh, David Mamet, the great uh, Chicago dramatist and playwright. Chicago originated, anyway. And Mamet says, he has a, I have a, a uh, selection in the book where he, his advice to actors, do nothing, perform the physical action. He repeats himself. You know, Mamet in a, in a mammoth play, the characters say the same thing in six different ways. He writes the same way. Perform the physical action. Walk down the hallway. Turn the knob. Go through the door. What do I do? Walk down the door. What do I do? Turn the knob. What do I do? Walk through the door. How should I walk down the do- hallway? Walk down the hallway. How should I turn the knob? Turn the knob. How should I go through the door? Go through the door. What should I show on my face? show nothing on your face. And I think of Keaton, the great stone face. Keaton allowed, Keaton did what Mamet wants his actors to do. He allowed the story to supply the emotion so the audience would know how the actor was feeling without the actor having to show. Funny you should say that. That's
0: very funny, because Keaton, at the time of the interview, was in a short film by Samuel Beckett. Called and Film, as you, yeah. As you film. That's yeah. What, as you were quoting Mamet, that was Beckett. You see, the same. Mm-hmm. little details, you do the gesture, whatever it may, that mm-hmm. which we take for granted doesn't matter. But it becomes something. So when you see, I remember I, I saw a documentary about a hospital, and a guy is wheeling an older guy in a wheelchair toward the water fountain. The difficulty of getting to that water fountain is like Endgame, the difficulty, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. thing that we take for granted, mm-hmm. that little gesture. Now Mamet, was, in a sense, was taking off on Beckett.
1: Same and idea. And all
0: revolved around Buster Keaton's yes.
1: idea. Same idea. Same that's idea. So Mamet says, how do you walk thoughtfully?
0: <laughs>
1: and so I don't know how you walk thoughtfully. See, I think you just walk.
0: Yeah. Well, we're, so we're talking about the mystery of films, the, the genius behind it. And we come still with silent films. You mentioned about no words. And of course, we think of Garbo, don't we? Oh, yes. And then finally, she spoke. And Garbo's mystery, several write about Garbo. In your book, you quote various uh, yes. essays. and.
1: Pieces on Garbo. Including Stark Young, who said she was somebody we felt we knew. Which is strange, because I don't know if I would agree with that. She always seemed more mysterious to me. I'm but looking it up here. Let's see yeah, if I can find Garbo
0: it. Garbo on 162, this one.
1: 162,
0: okay. That's Garbo talking about Marilyn Monroe.
1: It's very funny. She thinks Marilyn Monroe would have been a wonderful Ophelia. Oh, yeah. Here's Marilyn Monroe and Truma Capote. They've gone to a funeral. That's a very funny scene. And... Um, then they go out of the church and they're walking along, and uh, I guess Capote here is quoting Constance Collier, who was the English-born actress. She was the teacher, one of the who teachers died of, and who was one of Maryland's teachers. And uh, she tells Capote, there is something there. She is a beautiful child. She thinks Monroe has talent. And then she says, do you want to read it? I was talking to Greta. Well, some of the stuff we... we it's
0: no, there's part, part of it we're yeah. not going to read, I know. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very funny
1: scene between Capote
0: and, uh, and Marilyn, you know, who who two kind of uh, lost souls. In the way. It's a very funny sequence at the, at the chapel. Oh, but it involves the idea of the very end, he says of her, as she Constance Collier
1: said. Marilyn Monroe, because they've they've walked all over New York and they've had this talk and it's been scandalous and it's also been sentimental. And finally at the end she says to Capote, remember, says Marilyn, I said, if anybody ever asked you what I was like, what Marilyn Monroe was really like, well, how would you answer them? I bet you'd tell them I was a slob, a banana split. Capote says, of course. But I'd also say, and she says, I can't hear you. And he says, "I'd say, you are a beautiful child,"
0: and that's the phrase used about her. But back to see Garbo, sent something in her. So we have to come back to Garbo. Stark yeah. Younger, someone book of certain concentration she had, and that concentration caught you. I remember we want to hear a voice in a moment. I, I remember seeing her in Camille with a stick of an actor, Robert Taylor, just yes. a stick of wood. Right. And there she was, and. Somehow you had a feeling, this may have been Stark Young who said it. She had a feeling that she had worked with her hands on the farm all her life before she became the courtesan. Mm-hmm. And she's with this woman who's her old friend and nurse, and she's out in the picking apples or something in the orchard, and suddenly you realize she's a farm girl. Mm-hmm. She was a farm girl, you knew it. And but here's when she speaks for the first we always say, Garbo, I want to go home. But the first word she used in sound movies was I want whiskey. She did Anna Christie, O'Neill's play, and she was cast. And this is a scene, this is a scene she, early, early in the movie with the great Marie Dressler, the old, old woman who lives with her father, whom she's looking for. She's a Scandinavian girl, comes from St. Paul, from Minneapolis uh, to, Chicago, uh, to New York, to the waterfront to look for her father. And she and this old woman are talking, and here's Garbo's voice as she speaks of her search.
2: I gotta meet someone too. My old man. Mm. I ain't seen him since I was a kid. I don't even know what he looks like. I just had a letter now and then. This was always the only address he gave him to write him back. He used to be a sailor. And I was thinking, seeing he ain't done a thing for me in my life, he might be willing to stick with the room and eat like it rested up. But I ain't expecting much from him. Give you a kick when you're down. That's what all men do. And I don't care. Maybe you know. Well, it, it, it isn't old Chris, is it? Who, old Chris? Yeah, Chris Christopherson. That's the last of me. That's him. I like Christopherson. It's my readman.
0: She's talking about being betrayed by men. But that she was made for this part, you
1: see. Oh, yeah. Again, there was that concentration. You know, when you mentioned Garbo, I was reminded of a piece that I have in the book by Nestor Almendros, the great Cuban-born cinematographer, and uh, who writes, he has a whole article in here about photographing women, and he says, when taking close-ups in a color picture, there was too much visual information in the background, which tends to draw attention away from the face. That is why the faces of the actresses in the old black-and-white pictures are so vividly remembered, even now. Movie fans nostalgically recall Dietrich, Garbo, Lamar. Filmed in black and white, those figures looked as if they were lit from within. Mm. And I feel the same way, studs. I, you know, the truly great stars were formed in black and white pictures. When we think today, we, we we tend to go back to black and white images. We don't think of the, in the same way about stars that we've seen in color films because they don't have the same dreamlike or mysterious quality to us. You said dreamlike.
0: It's interesting. You quote a Scorsese. Later on, earlier you, you, you spoke of someone, pieces of life. Who said that? Pieces, pieces of time. Orson Welles, yes. pieces mm-hmm. of time. Martin Scorsese, perhaps the finest American director today, mm-hmm. uh, spoke of a dream as he worked on Taxi. It's, uh, everything is dreamlike. And so we come back to these faces in black and white. And of course, I'm of a certain age. Naturally, I remember the others vividly, far more than I do almost faceless ones. Very good actors today, but not quite as three-dimensional.
1: Oh, the black and white. Last night, I had the television on, and they were showing Night of the Iguana by John Huston, Ava Gardner, Richard no, it's
0: funny you said. Isn't that funny by John Houston? Night of the Iguana, of Tennessee Williams uh-huh. by John Houston. But you, were the movie man, thought of Houston, oh, well, I'm the thinking filmmaker, of Houston
1: because I'm thinking of that black and white. Of course, girl, yeah, the black and white. I know, but it's the, interesting. Yeah. yeah, see, but so what? She uh, saw that in black and white. Oh yeah. And so it's just it's. When you're flipping the dial, don't you find when you hit a black-and-white movie, you want to stop and see what it is? Well, I always yeah.
0: I, well, you're asking the wrong guy. For me, the answer is easy, of course. <laughs> so we're talking to Raji. we we'll have one more reel to go for this first uh, sequence. This is a two-part program because of the, uh, com- the nature of the book, the all encompassing nature of the book. Roger Ebert's book on film, and it's Norton. And we have to come to perhaps this f- end the first part with Citizen Kane. And so we come to the film that generally considered, Roger, generally considered the finest of all, and that's, of course, Orson Welles' production with associates of Citizen Kane, and that is, suppose we hear, just to set the scene, uh, as much a time guy is talking at the beginning, we assume people uh, hearing the program have seen Citizen Kane at one time or another, and it's uh, the great tycoon is dead. Citizen Kane, who we know as William Randolph Hearst, who some say was Orson Welles. We'll come to that theme, too. The movie... Uh, so there, there's his estate, Xanadu, modeled after after Hearst's estate, Saint Simeon. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And here's the music we hear that sets it up. Someone big is on the scene. Of, his life is recreated. Now we come to the story of this
1: film, don't we? Well, this was a great film, and of course Bernard Herrmann's score was so, such an important part of it. It was like a bringing together of, of wonderful talents. All of the Mercury players came out of radio. And, uh, that was Wells' uh, Theater Company. Yes, uh, Orson Welles had a theater company on the radio, the Mercury Theater of the Air, with yes. Joseph Cotton, Agnes Moorhead, Edward Everett Sloan, uh, and, wonderful... Um, Collins... Ray Collins. Ray Collins, oh, yeah. Joseph Cotton. Yeah. And what they did, apart from anything else in Citizen Kane, they made one of the most elaborate soundtracks. They used overlapping dialogue. Uh, they used various kinds of sound, newsreel sound, radio sound, uh, uh, dialogue sound. And it's just a great movie to listen to and a great movie to see. But also it's about a, a larger-than-life figure oh, yes. doing a film about a larger-than-life figure. So many people um, at the time felt that Citizen Kane was based on William Randolph Hearst, and of course he was. But Hearst, you know, was not very happy with the film, and neither was Hedda Hopper, who was the columnist for the Hearst newspapers. And Wells at one point, Studs, I don't know if you know this, he actually had the effrontery to claim that the movie was really about Samuel Insull, the Chicago utilities tycoon, because Insull, of course, did build the Civic Opera House. And he did have a mistress who sang sister, there. Who,
0: yes, um, the name is irrelevant now. but uh, it was Mary McCormick, as a matter of fact. it's gone. It matters. it's not gossip now because it's long, long ago. Mm-hmm. and
1: it was, that was a parallel, but a sight was obviously her. just Hearst. that one scene where uh, where Citizen Kane builds an opera house and puts his his mistress, into it. Apart from that, everything else was obviously Hearst. And, uh, but the thing that's so fantastic was it took a larger than
0: life an outsized figure to make a film but an outsized figure. Mm. And Truffaut was
1: an admirer of him. Of and he spoke, this is really about Wells. Well, Truffaut has a book called The Films of My Life, and I have some selections from his book in my book. And uh, he says, when I saw, are you looking on page 121?
0: Yeah, page 121, 22. He just. uh,
1: He was filled with, overcome with admiration for the film's main character. Now that's funny because I'm not sure that we're supposed to admire Kane, maybe sympathize with him or understand him. Oh, no. Yeah. But he says, I thought he was marvelous, splendid, and I linked Orson Welles and Charles Foster Kane with the same idolatry. I thought the film was a panegyric to, what is that, panegyric, panegyric to ambition and power. When yeah. I saw it again, after I'd become a critic accustomed yeah. to analyzing my enjoyment, I discovered its true critical point of view, which yeah. was satire. I understood then that we're supposed to sympathize with the character of Jedabiah Leland, who was played by Joseph Cotton. You know, it would be good
0: if you read the last on page 122 to close this hour. Uh, uh, Page one twenty two, the middle of it, what we already found in Citizen Kane. It's okay. a tribute to Wells. And I think that's a beautiful tribute
1: that uh, What we have this is Truffaut writing. What we have already found in Citizen Kane and we'll find better expressed in other of Wells' work is a worldview which is personal, generous, and noble. There is no vulgarity, no meanness in this film, only the satirical, imbued by a fresh and imaginative anti bourgeois morality, a lecture on how to behave. What to do. What not to I do. I think that's a beautiful tribute. Yeah. That's it, the way he felt about Wells, which I
0: happen to agree with. Mm-hmm. And this is Roger Ebert, my guest, and we'll continue. This will be tomorrow night's program, uh, part two of his just, uh, just conversations, reflections on his book with music going along with it. Roger Ebert's book of film. From Tolstoy to Tarantino, the writing from a century of film, Norton the Publishers, and we'll pick it up tomorrow, and thanks for this moment. This has been great, Studs.